You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Otherwise, I'll soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What's the sword of his mouth? It's the word of God. All of a sudden, he'd come, and the word of God would go straight to the heart, straight to the heart. And those that had sinned and those that were compromising in their Christian walk, they knew who they were, and there was going to be conviction. But the question is, with the conviction, were they going to make the right decision? And what would that right decision look like? Throughout the Bible, we read several passages that refer to God's Word as a sword. This, of course, is metaphoric in nature and serves to help us better comprehend the power behind it. As Pastor Danny will teach you in his message today, God's Word cuts straight to the heart and provides conviction where necessary, correction when needed, and guidance when wanted. In his study, you'll gain a better understanding of what Jesus meant when he warned the Nicolaitans that he would come at them with the sword of his mouth. Now here's Pastor Danny in Revelation chapter 2 with today's edition of The Living Word. Revelation chapter 2. The outline for the book of Revelation is found in chapter 1, verse 19. John is told to write what he has seen, what is now, and what will take place later. What he has seen is the glorified, resurrected, glorified Christ. What is now is chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to seven chosen churches that are messages for the church age. Many good Bible teachers, David, Jeremiah, others, teach, rightly so, that there is a correspondence with the condition of each church and the messages to these churches to a period in church history. Some believe the church of Laodicea is the church that we're living in. That's the age. But you want to be careful about going too far with that. Because what can happen if you say, well, they're just messages for a period of the church age, you might miss the message in that letter for us. Every letter, every message is for the church anywhere, anytime until Jesus comes. The message to the church of Ephesus was the first. They were commended for their hard work, for their perseverance, and for their doctrinal soundness. But they were rebuked because in just a few years, they had left their first love. They didn't have the same passion for Jesus. And as a result, they didn't have the same love for one another that they had at the beginning. The message to the church of Smyrna, we chose to spend three Sundays on that. That's the suffering church. There was no rebuke for that church. And now we come to the letter and the message to the church of Pergamum. Chapter 2, verse 12. To 
to the angel, the messenger, the pastor, whatever, to the church of the church in Pergamum. Right. Pergamum, modern-day Turkey, that's where it was located, right near the sea. Many gods were worshipped in Pergamum. Um, one of the most noteworthy is Asclepius. He became known as Asclepius Soter, Asclepius the Savior. Asclepius was the god of healing. And that's interesting because Galen, second only to Hippocrates in medical history, was born in Pergamum. Isn't it interesting that the medical sign is the serpent? Not that medicine is bad. I appreciate a good doctor. But one little side note, Pergamum, Asclepius, the serpent, look to God first for your healing, not to man. There was a guy in the Old Testament, King Asa, that was afflicted with a disease in his feet because he had walked away from the Lord, and that's why the disease in his feet but it says in 2 Chronicles 16, 12, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So you know right away, Jesus has some cutting things to say to this church. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Quick reminder, Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. And Satan evidently has a place on the earth where he chooses to set up his throne, his rule, his reign. Is it still an ancient Pergamum? I don't know, but I personally don't think so. Because I think he moves his throne. And how does he determine where he's going to set up his throne? Well, to me, that's easy. He's going to set up his throne in the place where people will give him place. Where he'll have rule and reign. On a human level, uh, like you wouldn't want to be a part of the church of Smyrna because it's the suffering church. I'm not sure you'd choose to be a part of the church of Pergamum because that's where Satan has his throne. But they're commended. Even though a guy named Antipas was a faithful witness for the Lord and died for his faith in Pergamum, the other saints who are alive are commended. You've been faithful. Even in a place where Satan has his throne, that's where you live. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Well, look a little closer at the teaching of Balaam, but let me just make a note for those who will hear this. The issue here that they're rebuked for, eating food sacrificed to idols, and committing sexual immorality, and they're tied together. Paul tells us very clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that eating food offered to an idol is not in itself sin. He'll go on there to say, an idol is nothing. 
We know there's only one true God, so every idol is a false God. So it's not just eating food offered to an idol, but it's something connected with that that led them also into sexual sin. And Balaam is the key figure. He's the one who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and then committing sexual immorality. So, turn to one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapter 22. And here's the story of Balaam. The Moabites have heard about the people of Israel. God is giving them great victory over vast armies and peoples much stronger than them. And so the king of Moab, Balak, sends some of his servants to hire a man named Balaam. Balaam is a sorcerer. And the intention is to hire him and pay him for his services to put a curse on Israel because Israel is headed toward Moabite territory. But the God of heaven reveals himself to Balaam. And when these men from Balak come, chapter 22, verse 12, God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. Next morning, Balaam got up, said to Balak's princes, go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princes returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. And Balak sent other princes, more numerous, more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam, and they said, this is what Balak says. Don't let anything keep you from coming to me, because I'll reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. They come back, more distinguished princes, from Balak, and they say, Balak says, blank check. You fill in the amount. Whatever you want, he'll do for you. Balaam, verse 18, answered, even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now he's calling the God of Israel his God. But verse 19 is telling. Don't miss it. Now stay here tonight, he tells these guys as the others did. And I'll find out what else the Lord will tell me. What? You think God's going to change his mind? That night, God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. You think God changed his mind? He didn't. And I'll prove it in just a minute. But if someone is determined on a path, sometimes God will appear to have changed his mind just to teach them a lesson, that they should have listened to his clear word to begin with. Verse 21, Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. The angel of the Lord is Christ in the Old Testament before he became the man, Jesus. This is Christ. Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. It's pretty bad when your donkey sees clearer than you see. 
Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. And then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And he was angry. And he beat her with his staff. And I'll never get tired of reading or teaching this part of the story. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And I can see Balaam scratching his head and he answered his donkey. You made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. The donkey then says to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you've now always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? In other words, is this out of the ordinary for me? And you can see him scratching his head again, thinking, he says, well, you know, you're right. No, no, you're a, you're a smart, smart jackass. <laughs> Smarter than Balaam. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and he fell face down. And the angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. You are headed for trouble, and I'm trying to save you. Your donkey is smarter than you. Get some brains, dude. I've come here to try to save you because you're determined to go on a path, and it's not going to end up where you want to end up. Balaam would later prophesy. He would pronounce blessing on Israel. Every time he does, Balak gets angry and says, I I hired you to curse him, not to bless him. But what he says with his mouth is not what's in his heart. And when you get to chapter 25, it opens this way. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the man began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Numbers doesn't tell us, but Revelation does. It was Balaam who figured out a way, and he told Balak, God is not going to allow me to curse these people. They're his people. They're blessed people, but there is a way. And he taught Balak. Take your nicest looking women and go out to these Israelite men and invite them to one of your church services. You need to understand something. These men didn't simply go hop in bed with a chick. I don't know exactly how the conversation went, but I can imagine the introduction and as they began to converse. Oh, yeah, we're, we're Moabites. We believe in God. Oh, you believe in God. Yeah, we believe in God. And somehow with the common denominator that they believed in God, they were able to get these guys to come to a a service, one of their services. Just pause for a moment. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, Balaam, who taught Balaam to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Is that connected? Well, this is one time when you can go back in history 
And you can see history bearing out that during this time of the church of Pergamum, it's the time of Constantine. Constantine was the first Roman emperor to confess conversion to Christianity. As a result of his confession of conversion to Christianity, he made religion, the state religion, Christianity. Now, on the surface, you say, what a great idea to have a Roman emperor, and he makes it state religion, Christianity. On the surface, it sounds good, but it didn't work out very well. Why? Two things happened. Number one, there developed two classes of people in the church, the clergy and the laity. And you had the practice of the nico, it means to domineer over, to lord over, Nicolaitans, the laity. You had the priesthood working for Rome. The state religion is Christianity. So they're going to make sure you act like a Christian in terms of the definition of what Christianity is as determined by the state. Two classes of people, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Second thing that happened that was not good and in some ways worse The idol temples are now no longer idol temples because the state religion is Christianity. And so now the idol temples become Christian temples, but (laughs) some of the practices of the idolatry of the past continued on in the state-run, state-determined Christian religion. And what happened is this. Lines were blurred between secular and sacred. Lines were blurred between what is holy living and what's okay to do. And by simple association with other people who said, well, I believe in God. I'm a Christian. But the standards were lowered. And just by association with other people who believed in God and claimed to be Christian, people were seduced. And you began going to places that you should not be and doing things you should not do. And then you end up in bed with somebody and it's not biblically your husband and it's not your wife. And that's exactly what happened in the church of Pergamum. And that's happening still today. It was not the eating of food offered to idols. It was association with those who were worshiping Another God, even though they might have claimed to be worshiping the same God. Now, let's get real practical here because it's not hard to understand. It's not hard to understand. What was Balaam's first mistake and what he would have been an example to and in his teaching led others into? What was his first mistake? Listen, it ain't rocket science. A child can understand it. You go back to the story in Numbers chapter 22. We just read it. And when God appears to Balaam, when these guys show up to hire him to go put a curse on Israel, and what does God say? Do not go with them. Don't go with them. But there was something, especially when they came back with the more distinguished people from Balak, and Balak has the blank check. He'll do whatever you want. I mean, come on, fill in the blank. And then he was enticed. And no matter what he said with his mouth, his heart wasn't true. He had a thy will, my will attitude. He was half-hearted. And while confessing outwardly 
inwardly something wasn't right. Repentance. Repentance. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Repent, exclamation point. Otherwise, I'll soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What's the sword of his mouth? It's the word of God. All of a sudden, he'd come, and the word of God would go straight to the heart, straight to the heart. And those that had sinned and those that were compromising in their Christian walk, they knew who they were, and there was going to be conviction. But the question is, with the conviction, were they going to make the right decision? And what would that right decision look like? Repentance for those who had fallen to sexual immorality would mean, obviously, repenting and stopping the sexual sin. But continued victory would mean no longer associating with those who had led them astray. Paul puts it very simply and clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. And so for those in Pergamum, some would have to break up with the girl friend, the boy friend. You say, that's hard. I love them. Jesus said, if your right eye offends you, plug it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. That is painful. That is bloody. But it'll save your life. Please, please, please. Maybe, maybe God wants to save somebody that's in a relationship and it's not in the will of God and you're not living holy and that person is not God's will for your life. And just like he did with Balaam, he's saying to you by the word, by the word, he's trying to save you from a reckless path. You end up marrying this person and you're going to live the rest of your life With someone that's not God's will for your life, don't do it. Run! Some of you are looking at me going, too late. (laughs) Doggone it, I wish I'd have heard this message five years ago. You don't have an out. (laughs) If you married outside of the will of God, the will of God now is that you stay married. Sorry. He's doing better, isn't he? I know them. And they know me. God's got our best interest at heart. But we're so easily duped. We're so easily seduced. And the sexual sin, you see, the sexual sin, it's so, it's so powerful in the hands of the, the enemy and the deceiver and the enticer because it's a natural God-given desire. Look, let me just say, look, every song about romance, every movie about romance, every prince and uh, prince charming dream and all that stuff, that's from God. God created it. God created it. And so it's a God-given desire to have somebody that you long for, that you want to love and be intimate with. It's God-given. But we live in a fallen world, and we're fallen creatures, and the devil is so powerful, and so he's such a liar. So please, please, please don't be deceived. 
And if you're on the way down the wrong path, or if you've gone down the wrong path, thank God. He said, look, look, repent, repent. The book of Revelation isn't an easy book to study. It lays out for you the end of the world as you know it right now. And the devastation that will be falling on the world is overwhelming. And it can make you ache for the people who will have to endure it. It can also make you long for everyone you know to seek and find Jesus right now. Only He can save the people of the world from this terrible end. And His grace is available right now to everyone. Today, let Jesus bring to mind those friends, family, and even acquaintances that you can be praying for and actively sharing His gospel message with. We know that this isn't an easy task, so we'd like to support you in prayer. Please email us at info at ccfstpete.church. That's info at ccfstpete.church. We're so glad that you took some time today to learn from the living word with us. If you'd like to hear this teaching again, visit our website, ccfstpete.church. Just click on sermons. You'll be directed to our YouTube page and would love for you to subscribe. When you do, you'll be notified by email every time we post a new message. That's all the time that we have for today's message. Join Pastor Danny next time to continue digging deeper into the scripture right here on the living word.